Chapter Seventeen of Women on the American Frontier. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. Women on the American Frontier by William W. Fowler. Chapter Seventeen. Woman as a missionary to the Indians. Continued. Of all that devout and heroic bands of men and women who have undertaken to bear the hardships and face the dangers of our American wilderness. For the special purpose of carrying the gospel of peace, love, and brotherhood to the benighted denizen of our American forests, none have exhibited more signal courage, patience, and devotion than the companies which first selected Oregon as their special field of labor. In order to properly estimate the appliances and dangers of this enterprise, the Oregon field must be surveyed, not from our present point of view. When steam locomotive power on land and water has brought that distant region within comparatively easy reach, when the hands of the state and national government have grown strong to defend, and can be stretched a thousand leagues in an hour to punish, if the lightning brings tidings of wrong, when a multitude of well ordered communities have power and lawful authority to protect their citizens, and when peace and comfort are the accompaniments, and a competency is the reward of industry. How different was the view of Oregon presented to the eye in 1834? A vast tract of wilderness, covering an area of more than 300,000 square miles, composed of sterile wastes, unbroken forests, and almost impassable ranges of mountains, presenting a constant succession of awful precipices, rugged crags, and yawning chasms, and traversed by rapid torrents, emptying into rivers full of perils to the navigator. This mighty expanse was roamed by more than thirty different Indian tribes, the only white inhabitants being at the few posts and settlements of the Hudson Bay Company. The different routes by which this region could be reached presented to the traveler a dilemma, either side of which was full of difficulty. The water route was nearly twenty thousand miles in length, and involved a long and perilous voyage round Cape Horn. The land route was across the continent. Through the gorges and over the precipices of the Rocky Mountains, up and down the dangerous rivers, and among numerous bloodthirsty tribes. Such was the opening prospect offered to the eye of religious enterprise when the question of the mission to Oregon was first agitated. It is something more than forty years since the Macedonian cry was heard from the dark mountains and savage plains of that far country, startling the Christian church in America. The thrill of the appeal made by the delegation of Flathead Indians was electric, and fired the churches of all the principal denominations with a spirit of noble emulation. Dr. Marcus Whitman, and Mrs. Whitman, his wife, and Mr. and Mrs. Spaulding, were among the earliest to respond to the appeal. In 1836, they crossed the continent, scaled the Rocky Mountains, and penetrated to the heart of the wild region, which was to be the scene of their heroic labors. Crowned at length by a martyr's death. Mrs. Whitman and Mrs. Spaulding, it should be remembered, were the first white women that ever crossed that mighty range which nature seems to have invented as a barrier against the aggressive westward march of the Anglo Saxon race. Strong indeed must have been the impelling motive which carried these two weak women over that rugged barrier. Mr. and Mrs. Gray, Mr. and Mrs. Clark, Mr. and Mrs. Littlejohn, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, And the Lees came next, pursuing their toilsome march over the same mountain ranges, and closely behind them came Mr. and Mrs. Griffin and Mr. and Mrs. Munger. 
The stories of the adventures and difficulties passed through by these missionary bands, enforcing their way over the mountains, would fill volumes. Their way lay sometimes over almost inaccessible crags, and at others, through gloomy and tangled forests, and as they descended, the snow increased in depth, and they felt the effects of the increasing cold very keenly. The only living things which they saw were a few mountain goats. Sometimes chasms yawned at their feet, and they were forced to go out of their course twenty miles before they could cross. One of the ladies wandered from the party in search of mountain ferns. She was soon missed, and one of the guides was sent back to search for her. After a short quest, they found her tracks in the snow, which they followed till they came to a crevasse, through which she had slipped and fallen sixty feet into a monstrous drift, where she was floundering and shouting feebly for help. With some difficulty she was extricated unhurt from this perilous situation. When their day's journey was ended, they had also to encamp on the snow, beating down the selected spot previously, till it would bear a man on the surface without sinking. The fire was kindled on logs of green timber, and the beds were made of pine branches. All alike laid on the snow. One of the peculiar dangers to which they were exposed were the mountain torrents, which in that region were impassable often for the stoutest swimmer, and this danger became magnified when they reached the upper Columbia River, which they were obliged to navigate in boats. At one particular spot in the course of their voyage they narrowly escaped a serious disaster. The Columbia is, at the spot alluded to, contracted into a passage of one hundred and fifty yards, by lofty rocks on either side, through which it rushes with tremendous violence, forming whirlpools in its passage capable of engulfing the largest forest trees, which are afterwards disgorged with great force. This is one of the most dangerous places that boats have to pass. In going up the river the boats are all emptied, and the freight has to be carried about half a mile over the tops of the high and rugged rocks. In coming down, all remain in the boats, and the guides, in this perilous pass, display the greatest courage and presence of mind, at moments when the slightest error in managing their frail bark would hurl its occupants to certain destruction. On arriving at the head of the rapids, the guide gets out on the rocks and surveys the whirlpools. If they are filtering in, or making, as they term it, the men rest on their paddles until they commence throwing off when the guides instantly re-embark and shove off the boat, and shoot through this dread portal with the speed of lightning. Sometimes the boats are whirled round in the vortex with such awful rapidity that renders all management of the vessel impossible, and the boat and its hapless crew are swallowed up in the abyss. One of the party had got out of the boat, preparing to walk, when looking back he saw one of the other boats containing two of the ladies, in a dangerous situation, having struck, in the midst of the rapids, upon the rocks, which had stove in her side. The conduct of the men in this instance evinced great presence of mind. The instant the boat struck, they had sprung on the gunwale next the rock, and by their united weight kept her lying upon it. The water foamed and raged round them with fearful violence. Had she slipped off, they must all have been dashed to pieces among the rocks and rapids below. As it was, they managed to maintain their position until the crew of the other boat, which had run the rapids safely, had unloaded and dragged the empty boat up the rapids again. Then they succeeded in throwing a line to their hapless companions. But there was still great danger to be encountered, lest in hauling the empty boat towards them they might pull themselves off the rock. They at length, however, succeeded by cautious management in getting the boat alongside, and in embarking in safety. 
A moment afterwards their own boat slipped from the rock and was dashed to pieces. Everything that floated they picked up afterwards. The same noble spirit which carried Mrs. Whitman, Mrs. Spaulding, Mrs. Gray, Mrs. Littlejohn, Mrs. Clark, Mrs. Smith, Mrs. Munger, Mrs. Griffin, and their coadjutors across our continent on their lofty errand, also inspired another band of gospel messengers to move in the same great enterprise. Dr. White of New York and his wife were prominent in this latter movement. Their immediate company consisted of thirteen individuals, five of whom were women, viz. Mrs. White, Mrs. Beers, Miss Downing, Miss Johnson, and Miss Pittman. These ladies were all admirably fitted, both physically and mentally, for the enterprise in which they were embarked. Mrs. White was a lady in whom were blended quiet resolution, a high sense of duty, and great sensibility. When her husband informed her one cold night, in the winter of 1836, that there was a call for them from Oregon, that the Board of Missions advertised for a clergyman, physician, etc., etc., and as he could act in the capacity of doctor, he thought it might be well to respond thereto. She did not immediately answer, and looking up, he was surprised to find her weeping. This seemed to him singular, as her disposition was so unusually cheerful, and it was seldom there was a trace of tears to be found upon her cheek, especially, as he thought, for so trivial a cause. In some confusion and mortification, he begged her not to allow his words to cause her uneasiness. Still she wept in silence, till, after a pause of several moments, she struggled for composure, seated herself by his side, extended her hand for the paper, and twice looking over the notice, remarked that if he could so arrange his affairs as to render it consistent for him to go to Oregon, she would place no obstacle in his way, and with her mother's consent would willingly accompany him. Dr. White offered his services to the Board of Missions. They were accepted, and he was requested to be in readiness to sail in a few weeks, from Boston, via the Sandwich Islands, to Oregon. Mrs. White still retained her determination to accompany her husband. Though till she saw the appointment and its publication, she scarcely realized the possibility of a necessity for her doing so. The thought that they were now to leave, perhaps forever, their dear home and dearer friends, was a sad one and she shed tears of regret, though not of reluctance, to go. She pictured to herself her mother's anguish, at what must be very like consigning her only daughter to the grave. The anticipated separation from that mother, who had nursed her so tenderly, and loved her with that tireless, changeless affection which the maternal heart only knows, filled her with sorrow. However, by a fortunate coincidence, they were spared the painful scene they had feared, and obtained her consent with little difficulty. When they visited her, for that purpose, she had just been reading for the first time the life of Mrs. Judson, and the example of this excellent lady had so interested her, that when the project was laid before her, she listened with comparative calmness, and though somewhat astonished, was willing they should go where duty led them. This in some measure relieved Mrs. White, and with a lightened heart, and more composure, she set about the necessary preparations. In a short time all was in readiness, the last farewell wept, rather than spoken, the last yearning look lingered on cherished objects, and they were on their way to Oregon. On the day that their eldest son was one year old, they embarked from Boston. That their adieus were sorrowful may not be doubted, indeed this or any other word in our language is inadequate to describe the emotions of the party. As the pilot boat dropped at the stern of the vessel, 
its occupants waved their handkerchiefs, and simultaneously began singing a farewell missionary hymn. The effect was electric. Some rushed to the side in agony, as though they would recall the departed ones and return with them to their native land. Others covered their faces, and tears streamed through their trembling fingers, and sobs shook the frames of even strong men. They thought not of formalities in that hour. It was not a shame for the sterner sex to weep. The forms of their friends fast lessened in the distance, and at last their boat looked like a speck on the wave and the sweet cadences of that beautiful song, faintly rolling along to their hearing, like the sigh of an angel, were the last sounds that reached them from the home of civilization. With hushed respiration, bowed heads, and straining ears, they listened to its low breathings, now wafted gently and soothingly to them on the breeze, then dying away, and finally lost in the whisperings of wind and waves. For weeks did it haunt their slumbers while tossing upon the treacherous deep. And it came not alone, for with it were fair visions of parents, home, brothers and sisters, joyous childhood and youth, and everything they had known at home floated in vivid pictures before them, touching them as by the fairy pencil of the dream angel. The voyage was a protracted one, but the close relationship into which they were brought served to knit together the bonds of Christian fellowship and inspire them with a oneness of purpose in carrying out their noble enterprise. Immediately on arriving at their field of labor, they entered on their first work, viz. that of establishing communities. In that almost unbroken wilderness, cabins were erected, the ground prepared for tillage, and steps were taken towards the building of a saw and gristmill. The Indians were conciliated, and a mission school for their instruction was established. The party received constant accessions to their numbers as the months rolled away and opened communications with the other mission colonies in the territory. During the summer the ladies divided their labors. The school of Indians was taught by Miss Johnson. Miss Downing, now Mrs. Shepherd, attended to the cutting, making, and repairing of the clothing for the young Indians, as well as these for the children of the missionaries. Mrs. White and Miss Pittman, now Mrs. Jason Lee, superintended the domestic matters of the little colony. In September, Mr. and Mrs. Leslie, three daughters, and Mr. Perkins, the fiancé of Miss Johnson, joined them. The family was now enlarged to sixty members. Dr. and Mrs. White removed into their new cabin, a mile distant. Here ensued a repetition of trials, privations, and hardships, such as they had already endured in their former habitation. Their cabin was a rude affair, scarcely more than a shanty, without a chimney, and with only roof enough to cover a bed. A few loose boards served for a floor. One side of the house was entirely unenclosed, and all their cooking had to be done in the open air, in the few utensils which they had at hand. One by one these deficiencies, with much toil and difficulty, were supplied. A tolerably close roof and walls shielded them measurably from the autumn tempests. A new chimney carried up about half the smoke generated from the green fuel with which the fireplace was filled. The hearth, made of clay and wood ashes, was, however, a standing eyesore to Mrs. White, who appears to have been a notable housewife, as it did not admit of washing, and had to be renewed every two or three months. These were discomforts indeed, but nothing compared with another annoyance to which they were nightly subject, that part of the territory where they lived being infested by black wolves of the fiercest species. Their situation was so lonely, and Dr. White's absences were so frequent, 
that Mrs. White was greatly terrified every night by the frightful howlings of these ferocious marauders. One night Dr. White left home to visit Mr. Shepherd, who was ill, and some of the sick mission children. Mrs. White, while awaiting his return, suddenly heard a burst of prolonged howling from the depths of the forest, through which the doctor would have to pass on his return homeward. The howls were continued with all the eagerness which showed that the brutes were close upon their prey. She flew to the yard, and in the greatest terror besought the two hired men to fly to her husband's rescue. They laughed at her fears and endeavored to reason her into composure, but the horrid din continued. Through the wild chorus she fancied she heard a human voice faintly calling for help. Unable longer to restrain her excited feelings, she snatched up a long pair of Cooper's compasses, the first weapon that offered itself, and sallied out into the woods, accompanied by the men armed with rifles. They ran swiftly, the diapason of the howls guiding them in the proper course, and in a few moments they came to a large tree, round which a pack of hungry monsters had collected, and were baying in full chorus, jumping up and snapping their jaws at a man who was seated among the branches. The cowardly brutes, catching sight of the party, sneaked off with howls of baffled rage, and were soon beyond hearing. The doctor descended from his retreat, quite panic-stricken at his narrow escape. He informed them that on first starting from the mission he had picked up a club to defend himself from the wolves should they make their appearance. But when one of the animals came within six feet of him, and by its call gathered others to the pursuit, his valiant resolutions vanished, he dropped his stick and plied his heels, with admirable dexterity, till the tree offered its friendly aid, when he hallowed for help with all the power of his lungs. But for Mrs. White's appreciation of the danger, and her speedy appearance upon the scene, Dr. White's term of usefulness in the Oregon mission would have been greatly abridged. The necessities of their missionary life compelled different members of their little band to make frequent journeys both by land and water. It was on one of these journeys, and while passing down the Columbia River in a canoe, that Mrs. White met with an accident that plunged the whole mission into mourning. Mrs. White, with her babe, and Mr. Leslie, had embarked in a canoe on the river where the current was extremely rapid, and as they reached the middle of the stream, the canoe began to quiver and sway from side to side. The sense of her danger came upon Mrs. W., as with a presentiment of coming danger. She trembled like a leaf, as she remarked, How very helpless is a female with an infant! At the instant that her voice ceased to echo from the rocky shores, and as if a spirit of evil stood ready to prove the truth of her exclamation, the canoe, which was heavily laden, gave a slight swing, and striking a rock began to fill with water, and in a few seconds went down. As the water came up round them, the child started convulsively in its mother's arms, and gave a piercing shriek, Mr. Leslie at the same time exclaiming, "Oh God, we're lost! When the canoe rose it was free from its burthen, and the bottom upwards, and Mrs. White found herself directly beneath it, painfully endeavoring to extricate herself, enduring dreadful agony in her struggle for breath. Despairingly she felt herself again sinking, and in coming in contact with the limbs of a person in the water, the reflection flitted across her brain. I have done with my labors for these poor Indians. Well, all will be over in a moment, but how will my poor mother feel when she learns my awful fate? Mr. Leslie afterwards stated that he had no recollection till he rose, and strove to keep above water, but again sank, utterly hopeless of succor. He rose again, just as the canoe passed around a large rock, and its prow was thrown within his reach. 
He clutched it with eager joy, and supported himself a moment, gasping for breath, when he suddenly thought of his fellow passenger, and the exclamation ran through his mind, "'What will the doctor do?' He instantly lowered himself in the water as far as possible, and, still clinging with one hand, groped about as well as he was able. When providentially he grasped her dress, and succeeded in raising her to the surface. By this time the Indians, expert swimmers, had reached the canoe, and with their assistance he supported his insensible burden, and placed her head upon the bottom with her face just out of the water. After a few moments she gasped feebly, and opening her eyes, her first words were, "'Oh, Mr. Leslie, I've lost my child.' "'Pray, do dismiss the thought,' said he, "'and let us try to save ourselves.' They were wafted a long way down the river, no prospect offering for their relief. At length they espied, far ahead, the two canoes which had entered the river before them, occupied, as it proved, by an Indian chief and his attendants. Mr. Leslie hallooed to them, with all his remaining strength, and they hastened towards them, first stopping to pick up the trunks and a few other things which had floated down the stream. When at last they reached the sufferers, finding them so much exhausted, the chief cautioned them to retain their hold, without in the least changing their position, while he towed them gently and carefully to the shore. Here they rested, draining the water from their clothes, and Mr. Leslie from his head and stomach, for he had swallowed a vast quantity. In half an hour the Indians righted the canoe, which had been drawn on shore, and to their amazement and almost terror they found beneath it the dead babe, wrapped in its cloak, having been kept in its place by the atmospheric pressure. Mr. Leslie was now uncertain what course to pursue, and asked his companion's advice. She told them she was desirous of proceeding immediately to Fort Vancouver, as they had nothing to eat, no fire, and, in short, had lost so many of their effects that they had nothing wherewith to make themselves comfortable, if they remained there till even the next day. Their canoe was a large one, being about twenty feet in length and four in breadth, and was laden with a bed, bedding, mats, two large trunks of clothing, kettles and dishes, and provisions to last the crew throughout the journey, and also articles of traffic with the natives, and they lost all but their trunks, the contents of which were now thoroughly soaked. They seated themselves in the canoe, and the chief threw his only blanket over Mrs. W.'s shoulders, both himself and men exerting themselves to render their charges comfortable during the thirty-six miles they were obliged to travel before reaching the fort, which was late in the evening. They were met by Mr. Douglas, who was greatly shocked at the narrative, and whose first words were, "'My God, what a miracle! Why, it is only a short time since, in the same place, we lost a canoe, with seven men, all good swimmers.' The following morning the bereaved mother was quite composed. They started at eight o'clock, and with the little coffin, provided by Mr. Douglas, at their feet, traveled rapidly all day, and camped at night just above the falls of the Willamette. They took supper, the men pitched their borrowed tents, and after a day of great fatigue they lay quietly down to rest. In a short time, however, they were disturbed by a loud paddling and voices, and looking out, beheld about thirty Indians, men, women, and children, in canoes, who landed and camped very near them. Their arrival filled Mrs. White with new apprehension. She feared now that she might be robbed of her dead treasure, and perhaps lose her own life, before she could consign it to its last resting-place. All through that restless, dreary night she kept her vigils, with bursting heart, beside the corpse of her baby. 
The noises of the Indian camp, the guttural voices of the men, the chattering of the squaws, rang in her ears, while the cries and prattling of the children, by reminding her of the lost one, served to enhance the poignancy of her grief. What a situation for the desolate mother! All alone with death, far from her mother, husband, home, and friends, surrounded by a troop of barbarous, noisy savages, weighed down with grief, tearless from its very weight, not knowing what next would befall her. What agony did she endure through that night's dreary vigils! She felt as though she were draining the cup of sorrow to its dregs, without the strength to pray that it might pass from her. They set off as soon as it was light, that they might, if possible, reach the mission before putrescency had discolored the body of the infant. They arrived at McCoy's about one o'clock, where, while they were dining, horses were prepared, and they went on without delay. It is impossible to describe the emotions of the doctor when he met them about twelve miles from the mission, as, excepting a floating rumor among the natives, which he hardly credited, he had had no intimation of the accident. The sad presentiment was realized. Death had entered their circle and robbed them of their fair child. As he looked into the face of his wife, he comprehended in part her sufferings. Amid these and similar sad experiences, this heroic band of Christian women abated not their zeal or efforts in the work to which they had put their hand. In other parts of the territory, separate missionary establishments were superintended by the Whitmans, the Spaldings, and others. The blessings of civilization and religion were thus extended by these devoted men and women to the benighted red man. For a period of eight years, Dr. and Mrs. Whitman resided on the banks of the Walla Walla River, doing all in their power to benefit the Indians. Such labors as theirs deserved a peaceful old age, and the enduring gratitude of their tawny protégés. Alas, that we have to record that such was not their lot. Melancholy indeed was the fate of that devoted band upon the Walla Walla. The measles had broken out among the Indians, and spread with frightful rapidity through the neighboring tribes. Dr. Whitman did all he could to stay its progress but great numbers of them died. The Indians supposed that the doctor could have stayed the course of the malady if he had wished it, and accordingly concocted a plan to destroy him and his whole family. With this object in view, about sixty of them armed themselves and came to his house. The inmates, having no suspicion of any hostile intentions, were totally unprepared for resistance or flight. Dr. and Mrs. Whitman and their nephew, a youth of about seventeen or eighteen years of age, were sitting in the parlor in the afternoon, when Silaki, the chief, and Tomacus entered the room, and addressing the doctor, told him very coolly they had come to kill him. The doctor, not believing it possible that they could entertain any hostile intentions towards him, told him as much, but whilst in the act of speaking, Tomacus drew a tomahawk from under his robe, and buried it deep in his brain. The unfortunate man fell dead in his chair." Mrs. Whitman and the nephew fled upstairs and locked themselves into an upper room. In the meantime, Zolaki gave the war-whoop, as a signal to his party outside, to proceed in the work of destruction, which they did with the ferocity and yells of so many fiends. Mrs. Whitman, hearing the shrieks and groans of the dying, looked out of the window, and was shot through the breast by a son of the chief, but not mortally wounded. A party then rushed upstairs, and dispatched the niece on the spot, dragging her down by the hair of her head, and taking her to the front of the house, mutilated her in a shocking manner with their knives and tomahawks. There was one man who had a wife bedridden, 
on the commencement of the affray he ran to her room, and taking her up in his arms carried her unperceived by the Indians to the thick bushes that skirted the river, and hurried on with his burden in the direction of Fort Walla Walla. Having reached a distance of fifteen miles, he became so exhausted that, unable to carry her further, he concealed her in a thick clump of bushes on the margin of the river, and hastened to the fort for assistance. On his arrival, Mr. McBain immediately sent out men with him, and brought her in. She had fortunately suffered nothing more than a fright. The number killed, including Dr. and Mrs. Whitman, amounted to fourteen. The other females and children were carried off by the Indians, and two of them were forthwith taken as wives, by Silicot's son and another. A man employed in the little mill, forming a part of the establishment, was spared to work the mill for the Indians. The day following the awful tragedy, a Catholic priest, who had not heard of the massacre, stopped on seeing the mangled corpses strewn round the house, and requested permission to bury them, which was readily granted. On the priest leaving the place, he met, at a distance of five or six miles, a brother missionary of the deceased, Mr. Spaulding, the field of whose labors lay about a hundred miles off, at a place on the river Coldwater. He communicated to him the melancholy fate of his friends, and advised him to fly as fast as possible, or in all probability he would be another victim. He gave him a share of his provisions, and Mr. Spaulding hurried homeward, full of apprehensions for the safety of his own family. But unfortunately, his horse escaped from him in the night, and after a six days' toilsome march on foot, having lost his way, he at length reached the banks of the river, but on the opposite side to his own home. In the dead of the night, in a state of starvation, having eaten nothing for three days, everything seeming to be quiet about his own place, he cautiously embarked in a small canoe, and paddled across the river. But he had no sooner landed than an Indian seized him, and dragged him to his own house, where he found all his family prisoners, and the Indians in full possession. These Indians were not of the same tribe with those who had destroyed Mr. Whitman's family, nor had they at all participated in the outrage. But having heard of it, and fearing the white man would include them in their vengeance, they had seized on the family of Mr. Spaulding, for the purpose of holding them as hostages for their own safety. The family were uninjured, and he was overjoyed to find things no worse. Notwithstanding this awful tragedy, the heroic woman remained at their posts in the different missionary stations in the territory, and long afterwards pursued those useful labors, which, by establishing pioneer settlements in the wilderness, and by civilizing and Christianizing the wild tribes, prepared the way for the army of emigrants which is now converting that vast wilderness into a great and flourishing state. End of chapter 17